This episode of Eat the Rules is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the online group coaching program that I run that gives you a step-by-step way of building up your self-worth beyond your appearance. With personalized coaching from me, incredible community support, and lifetime access to the program so that you can get free from body shame and live life on your own terms. Get details on what's included and sign up for the next cycle at summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I'd love to have you in that group. This is Eat the Rules, a podcast about body image, self-worth, anti-dieting, and intersectional feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 266, and I'm joined by Chris Sandel, nutritionist and coach. We're talking about what we can learn about eating disorder and diet recovery from the Minnesota starvation experiment. We're also talking about why eating disorders are like anxiety disorders and how treating eating disorders in this way can help with recovery. As well, Chris is going to talk about his framework that he uses to help clients heal and fully recover from eating disorders. You can find all the links and resources mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 266. I want to give a shout out to Lucy Toos who left this review. Thank God for this podcast. I found you at a time when my support has disappeared and I'm treading water. As an autistic woman with an eating disorder, you have made me laugh, cry, feel deep compassion and shout out loud. Yes, God damn it. Please keep going with the insights and discussions. Huge thanks from the UK. Thank you so much, Lucy. And I hope that you've found more support since you left this review. I really appreciate you taking the time to say these kind words to me. And you can leave a review by going to Apple Podcasts, search for Eat the Rules, then click Ratings and Reviews and click to leave a review. If you want some free guides from me, I have the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps you can take right now to feel better in your body. And if you're a professional, like if you're an educator or a coach or a therapist or a dietitian or a personal trainer, if you're somebody who works with people who also have body image struggles, I have a separate newsletter that I send to you and you can get on the list for that as well as grab the free body image coaching roadmap at summerinandin.com forward slash roadmap. I'm really excited for today's episode. Chris is really good at diving into the research around eating disorder recovery. And he's always kind of ahead of the game in terms of the approaches that are going to be helpful and what we can learn from the studies that have been done. And today we are diving into the Minnesota starvation experiment, which is a study that was done in the 40s. And it's kind of considered one of those like pivotal pieces of research to help us understand what happens to our body when we restrict food, as well as what it looks like in terms of recovery and how we can use that for eating disorder recovery. As well, we're talking about how all eating disorders are anxiety disorders, which is like mind-blowing. So I'm really excited for you to hear that. Chris Sandel is a nutritionist and coach. He helps clients with disordered eating and eating disorders reach a place of full recovery. Unlike other alternatives that focus on just one aspect of recovery, Chris takes a multi-pronged approach that teaches life-enhancing practices that are used well after the eating disorder is gone. 
Chris takes a health at every size and anti-diet approach. He helps clients move from a life that's dictated by fear, anxiety, and avoidance to living a meaningful life that is in alignment with their values. Chris is the founder of Seven Health and has a weekly podcast show called Real Health Radio. You can find more about him and everything he has at 7seven-health.com. And of course, I will link to that in the show notes. Let's get started with the show. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hey, Selma. Lovely to be chatting with you again. I know. I should have said welcome back to the show. I'm trying to remember. How many, how many, have you been on twice before or just once? I, I don't I've remember. I've been on once, up. but it feels like a lifetime ago. I think it must have been seven years ago because it was when I was first starting up my podcast. I actually had a client recently this week say, hey, I listened to your show on Summer. And a part of me was like, oh gosh, I, I wonder what I said in that first episode there's probably think, been a lot that, that has changed in this time. So yeah, it's been a while. I know. I feel like it was probably still really brilliant. Yeah, I was, I, I, I'll link to it in the show notes, but it was a long time ago. I know you did a separate sort of bonus for my program, but, and I think that's what I'm confusing it with. But anyways, I'm excited to have you back today because you're always full of such great wisdom. And I know we're going to talk about a couple of main things today, but we're going to sort of kick it off by talking about the Minnesota starvation experiment, because that will kind of lead into some of our other discussions. So for people who aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit about what the Minnesota starvation experiment was? Yeah, sure. And I'll have to start this by saying like I first found out about this probably a decade ago and have been really fascinated with it during all that time. I've done many podcasts on it myself. I actually, at the end of last year, interviewed one of the children of the participants of the Minnesota Salvation Experiment. So this is something I've spent a lot of time reading about and, and looking into. And so I guess it's done, please. I'll, I'll give an overview and like, please feel free to just interject and, and ask questions as, as I go through this, if there's anything that just instantly comes to mind. Yeah. So it was an experiment that was conducted between 1944 and 1945, and they wanted to understand what would happen in terms of starvation because there were so many places in the world that were going to be affected by famine who were already affected by famine because of the, the Second World War. And the two main things they wanted to understand was like, one, how does starvation affect the body? So in terms of all these different things, physiology, behavior, emotion, intellect, social changes, motivation, that kind of thing. But also what would be the nutritional requirements for refeeding a starving person? And if you were then going to have to go into different countries and refeed their population, what would be required as, as part of that? And as part of this, there were 4,400 applicants and 36 of them stood up to then the, the screening process for this. And, and the criteria for it was good physical and mental health, normal weight range, unmarried, the ability to get along with others under difficult conditions, and a genuine interest in relief and rehabilitation work. And all the guys that were, were part of this were all conscientious objectors. So they weren't fighting in the war, but they wanted to be able to do something. And, and a lot of them talked about, like, I wanted to be able to see, to say that I did something meaningful during the war. And as part of the experiment, there were really four phases and there's three main phases. And then there's a, a final one that some of them were, were part of. So the first phase was a control phase and this lasted for 12 weeks. And the goal of this stage was really to 
get the men to a point of being healthy and just understand what their baseline was before any starvation commenced. And there was a ton of tests that were done all throughout the experiment, but they wanted to find out what their baseline were before any of this kicked off. And so there was blood tests, there was pulse, there was metabolic rate, sperm count, like basically anything that could be tested was was tested. And I'm going to mention calories throughout this. I think it's kind of important and it's I don't know if there's a way I can talk about this experiment without calories. Is there anything you want to suggest? No, I think if it's going to be triggering to people, then they can know that from this point forward and and do whatever they need to do to take care of themselves. But I totally understand because I know that it's really important to the, the what they did to the participants in the study. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, at the beginning point in this control phase, the men were then all weight stable. And rather than getting everyone to eat the same amount of foods, each subject was treated individually. But if we're looking at it on a kind of general basis, at this point, they were eating three meals a day, and it was roughly 3,200 calories each day. So on average, that was what these men needed to be to be weight steady. And the control phase was also for the men to get to know each other because they're going to spend a lot of time together. And this was a point where they were kind of well-fed and in high spirits and could bond. So the next phase was then the starvation phase. And this is also referred to as semi-starvation, and it lasted for 24 weeks. Oh, my God. That's that's such a long time. (gasps) It it is a long time. And it's interesting the fact that they say semi-starvation because on average – they were having their calories cut in half immediately, like overnight. So they wanted to have it be like what would happen when a famine happens because of war or because of some natural disaster. And it happens very immediately. So overnight, the calories were cut in half. And so it was approximately 1,560 calories. But again, each of the participants were dealt with differently. And Keyes, who was the person who, who ran this experiment, he set individual goal weight loss amounts for each subject. And this range anywhere from about 19 to 28% of their starting weight. And so what they were doing is over that 24 weeks, each week, they would be modifying things to help them get to that intended place. And it meant that some of the participants would end up with a lot less food. So there was a couple of participants because their weight wasn't going down as expected who were on less than a thousand calories a day as time went on and they'd have another piece of bread removed and another piece of this removed because they they were trying to get them to this place so they'd end the experiment in the the place that, that he wanted them to. And as part of this, there were significant changes that occurred for the men's physical, mental, and and psychological health. And I'll get to that in a little bit, but let me just finish the the sort of overviews of this. After that 24 weeks, they then had a, it was called restricted rehabilitation. And this lasted for about 12 weeks. And this was the part of the experiment where they were wanting to discover what do you need to feed someone to help them recover as part of a famine? And they were split into different groups, and each of the, the the groups received either an extra 400 or 800 or 1,200 or 1,600 extra calories on top of what they had during the starvation phase. And they were then also divided into groups where some of them would get some extra protein, some of them would get vitamin supplements, and really just wanting to understand what the requirements were for, for refeeding an individual. And... Interestingly, after five weeks of doing this, the recovery was so much slower than expected. 
that they decided to then just add in even more food because even with the, the, the guys that were receiving the, the 1,600 extra calories, it just wasn't making a difference for them. And so their calories were all increased again. And then from this point onwards, there was improvements that started to occur. And there's actually a really nice quote from Keyes, who is the, the lead on this, connected to it. He said, enough food must be supplied to allow tissues destroyed during starvation to be rebuilt. Our experiment has shown that in an adult man, no appreciable rehabilitation can take place on a diet of 2,000 calories a day. The proper level is more likely 4,000 calories a day for some months. The character of rehabilitation diet is important also, but unless calories are abundant, the extra proteins, vitamins, and minerals are of little value, end quote. And I think that's just a really important thing that we'll probably circle back to is just like how much calories trumps everything else in terms of how important this is. Yes, like what I take away from that is there has to be some sort of an excess to the baseline in order to recover. Like it's not just about going back to where you were or where you should be based on kind of your, you know, your energy output and your size and everything else, but actually going, you know, beyond that in order to repair. Yeah, and I kind of, I, when I'm working with clients, I, I talk about when you're getting into states, it's the equivalent of you accruing debt. And you are then like incurring more and more debt. And so if you're trying to pay off debt, you can't just get in, what do I need for today? You're like, what do I need for today? Plus all of the others that have, have come before this. And so, yeah, it, it means that there is a lot more that is needed than the average day. And as Key's kind of pointed out with this, for the, for the men, it was 4,000 upwards. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so then there was, I was just, and then the final phase was an unrestricted rehabilitation phase. And this was only for some of the volunteers. So most of the volunteers after that restricted rehabilitation phase, that was where the experiment ended. But they then kept on 12 of the volunteers and they stayed for unrestricted rehabilitation. And this lasted for eight weeks. And during this phase, rather than them having these set amounts, they were basically allowed to eat whatever they, they wanted. And it was during this period that the numbers really increased. So during the first week of unrestricted eating, the individual intake was much higher. So up to 11,000 calories a day, averaged around about 4,400 calories a day. Like it was a lot more food that was coming in. And some of the men were commented that they would have these very large meals and were still hungry, even though they couldn't ingest any more food. And after sort of a number of weeks of calorie intakes being around that sort of 10,000 per day, then they started to level off and they were somewhere around like 3,200 to, to 4,500 calories a day, although some continued to eat more. And that continued on for, for eight weeks. And then after that eight weeks, they stopped tracking the man. The, the experiment was over. The men went off and, and did their and did their thing. And that that is the sort of the overview of what occurred as part of that experiment. Yeah. Wow. And so like I'm curious to know, like, because I think this is really important. This this research was really important in terms of like eating disorder recovery and, and stuff like that. But the symptoms in that like recovery phase. What were some of the symptoms and like, how do you kind of see that show up in individuals that you work with? So I think that the the 
part of why this is so important is there's the symptoms that happen in the recovery phase, which I definitely want to talk to, but also the symptoms that happen as part of being in a malnourished state and the restriction part of it. And I definitely subscribe to the the biopsychosocial model with eating disorders and so much of the symptoms that arise with eating disorders is connected to malnutrition and connected to the fact that the body just isn't getting enough of what it needs and that this then leads to physical and behavioral and psychological changes. And this is why this piece of research is, is so useful. And so often, I, like I've done a really long podcast on this and often I'll share this with clients to have a, a listen to to kind of get a sense of like how much does this match up with my experience. And so what I can do is I can go through a lot of the symptoms that the men started to experience while going through the, the semi-starvation phase. And then we can sort of look at what happened as, as part of the recovery. Yeah, sure. So in terms of the, the physical symptoms, they had decreased pulse. So their, their average heart rate was 55 beats per minute beforehand. And then during the, the restriction, it dropped down to 35. Their, their heart actually shrunk by 17% on average. Their blood volume dropped by 10%. They had low blood pressure and dizziness and, and vertigo. Some of them experienced blackouts. Their metabolic rate plummeted by as much as 50%. They had to take pillows with them to, to sit on because it hurt so much to, to sit down, uh, had increased sensitivity to cold. So they were all wearing much heavier clothes and lots of layers and drinking hot drinks and like a hot shower was their, their highlight of the day. They had increased tolerance to heat. So they'd have really hot plates and they'd ask for really hot food and tea and coffee and their, their caffeine consumption increased. So when when their coffee intake hit 15 cups a day, they, they set a nine cup limit because they were just trying to drink so much to get that sensation of, of, of feeling full and they drank tons of water as part of it. Some of them started to smoke to try and stave off hunger. A, a lot of them chewed gum as a way of dealing with it. And there was some who were up to like 40 packets of gum a day until, again, they had to set a limit of, okay, you're allowed two packets of gum a day. <laughs> They just developed strong cravings for for salt. They became obsessed with food, and it really became their principal topic of conversation. And their, their thoughts were about it. They read books about it. They collected cookbooks and menus and any information about like food production. Many of them said that they wanted to be to be chefs and open restaurants when it was over. They started to to lick their plates and have lots of different bizarre rituals connected to to their eating and they would try and subvert their desire for for food by by other hobbies and so they could collect things they would hoard things they really didn't like any kind of physical exercise and they spent as much time lying around to to keep warm as they could there was a lot of loss in terms of their their strength they had a real decreasing interest in in sex and their, their sperm count dropped down a, a lot during the experiments. There was obviously no females as, as part of the experiment, but the, the female equivalent is in ovulatory cycles where you're having a period but not ovulating or hypothalamic amenorrhea where menstruation completely stops. They had low red blood cells, so anemia. They had lower white blood cells, so their immune system. They developed edema or water retention. Their hair grew 
slowly and fell out and their nails stopped growing. They experienced frequent urination in the day and the night. They became constipated. They went from going once a day to once or twice a week. Cuts and bruises would heal slowly. They'd have muscle cramps. Sleep became really interrupted. And then from like the mental side of things, they, they did a thing where it's called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And it's it's a test that looks at different aspects of mood and personality. And they did this before the experiment and then during the experiment. And there were lots of scores that they would they would look at and, and scores connected to hypochondria and depression and hysteria all increased and it became known as this semi-starvation neurosis. One of the participants cut off three of his fingers with an axe during the experiments. And the week before, he'd dropped a car on his hand and then pulled it, pulled it away at just the last moment and had crushed one of his fingers. So it, it had a huge impact on him. There was loss of ambition and increased depression, people spending more time on their own, even if they were extroverts, more irritability, concentration and, and judgment and comprehension and, and decision-making became impaired, increased irritability and rigidity. So, I, I mean, there's, the, the list goes on, but I, I think that probably gives you a, a fair indication of just some of the changes that started to occur in these guys as, as part of the restriction. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then so what happened in the recovery phase, like with the symptoms, like, was there still that obsession with food for a long time? Like, I guess, yeah, what, what did you, what, what did you, what do you notice there? And, and especially like, as it relates to, you know, people that you work with when they're recovering from an eating disorder? So I think the the, the biggest thing that I think is useful to see with this in terms of recovery is the the body really has a hierarchy of of how it recovers and that it it goes about things in an order that someone if they were getting to choose it would possibly choose something differently and this is always a conversation i have of like yeah i, I understand this is what you would like to have happen and i really get how much of a challenge this could be and this is the way that the the body heals as part of this and the thing that is is kind of the standout is that the body prioritizes fat gain and weight gain really above all else to start with so obviously as part of this your your body has to repair all the tissues and organs that have, that have been damaged as, as part of this but that's just not where where it starts and there is a prioritizing of fat gain there's a prioritizing of, of fat around the middle and this happens in in much higher amounts than than in other places and so for an example at the point at which the the body fat percentage matched the pre-experiment levels the guys were still much lighter than when they started and when their their lean mass was back to pre-experiment levels their abdominal fat was like 40% higher than when they started and so the body just has a way of prioritizing these these things differently and look as time went on and when that lean tissue then reached the pre-experiment levels, this was when the weight gain typically started to level out. And then with time, it started to, to drop down. But that's just the order of things. And, and I do want to make just like two notes with this. Like one, 
when I talk about fat levels and, and lean mass and all of this, I, I'm doing so in a, in a neutral way and just explaining what happened. It's not like I think that it's bad that the body prioritizes fat gain or that it's a good thing that fat levels then came down. It's like just simply explaining the physiology of, of what happens in, in terms of the, the healing. And then the other one with this is just it takes time. And I think that this is a really important thing to remember and understand because in the study and the way it was presented by Keys, it was as if everything was resolved within a year, particularly around the the, the weight changes. But with subsequent, there's been other research that's done since this study. They've, they've interviewed the guys. There was a great bit of research. They, they interviewed the guys many, many decades later. And what it turns out is it was really about five years for total restoration or up to five years. And, and the average is about two years. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's different about this, too, is that pe- these guys like did it as part of an experiment. It wasn't like they didn't have the other, you know, like psychological factors that would actually that would trigger an eating disorder in somebody else, as well as the cultural like component of, of you know, fat phobia influencing their beliefs, like not to say that didn't exist back then, but it, I think that, you know, recovery is even harder when you're, you know, like when you're outside of that experimental setting, because you've got all these other factors that drove you to have those behaviors in the first place. 100%. I, I totally agree. And that's the thing. Like there are limitations with this. Like all of these guys were white men who are in their, their like between 22 and 33 years of, of age this hadn't started when they were in their early teens. Like this was like, yes, their, their food was restricted and they lost a lot of weight, but this was a very acute thing that happened over a 24-week period. It's not something that has gone on for, for years and years. And as you you said, like there's all these other influences that weren't there. Like none of the guys developed an eating disorder through this. Like they were all counting down the days for this thing to be over. And they were doing the minimal amount of exercise that they were required to do as part of the experiment. They they weren't doing anything extra. Like they were waiting for this to be over. And so that's a whole different experience to, to someone with an eating disorder. And so I think the, the value of this piece of research is just to be able to look at how much restriction in and of itself has an impact on physiology and psychology and behavior. And then obviously there's all of these other things that then are on top of that for someone who has an eating disorder. Yeah. Well, and even like the, you know, the caloric amount that they were given is something that like a lot of more extreme diets recommend as like a, you know, here, do this to be healthy, you know? And so you can see like (laughs) how, I guess it just puts it into perspective, right? Like I think people would think to starve you have to eat like 500 calories a day, but it's actually like, you know, things that a lot of mainstream diets recommend, like 1500 calories and things like that. And so, and then obviously it's always lower for women, but that's the other kind of, you know, thing that I notice from it is just that those things are readily promoted in the mainstream is to eat 1500 calories. And it's like, no, like that's, that's what was used in the Minnesota starvation experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I always then kind of laugh when they say that semi-starvation of like <laughs> right yeah yeah and and i think the expectation that like when you're recovering from an eating disorder then you know you should only eat a certain amount and you're wrong if you are you know wanting like this the kind of you know refeeding phase that people go through so 
I do feel like there's a lot of helpful just perspectives from it, as well as the weight gain around the middle. Because I think that for a lot of women, especially like that's a really vulnerable sort of place to put on weight. And so that also just, you know, it's like that's a part of the recovery process. And so doing healing around your relationship with that is also going to be really important to be able to, you know, accept it and know that like your body's really just doing the best it can. Yeah. And because I, I think so often with recovery is that there's this way of like, how do I do recovery where I gain the least amount of weight? Yeah. Or how do I do recovery so that I don't really gain weight or I don't gain weight around the middle? And again, this is what I liked about this experiment of like, it shows you how much like the body is going to do what the body is going to do. And like you trying to, I'm going to keep my protein higher. I'm going to do this thing as a way of trying to safeguard against that. All it leads to is you just, the repair isn't happening. And this is what they found out when they they did that, the restricted rehabilitation phase of like, unless you're hitting up against a certain amount of calories, it doesn't matter about those, those other those other things. And so I think it's, yeah, really helpful for me to then talk about this with clients of like, the fact that you're putting a weight around your belly, it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because this is how the body chooses to repair and recover. And that's a very natural process. Yeah, that's super helpful. So I know that kind of leads into sort of our other topic that I really wanted to get into with you today. And that is something that you've been researching and that you did a podcast on, I guess, last year. And that's really looking at eating disorders as anxiety disorders. So can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. And so this was something that it was maybe a couple of years ago that a client of mine shared a talk with me and it was a lecture given by Dr. Sasha Goro and Sasha is a psychologist and a assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco in the department of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. And her focus is really on the treatment of eating disorders. And the talk that she gave was called, Is Anorexia Nervosa an Anxiety Disorder? And as part of the lecture, she looked at the the similarities between anxiety disorders and how anxiety disorders predate the eating disorder and just the overlap between the two and, and how much eating disorders were similar to anxiety disorders and how much it made sense for from a kind of treatment perspective to think of eating disorders as anxiety disorders. And I'm obviously hugely simplifying her talk. I had her on the podcast. We chatted for about two hours on this as, as a topic. But I think just as a, as a starting point or as like in a nutshell, it's just that eating disorders are anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the other thing that's interesting about that is that like, because I was talking to on a, a podcast I did a couple months ago with um, Jillian McCollum and, and Tamsin Broster, who are both practitioners out, out in the UK and as well. Actually, I think one of them might be in Scotland. Anyways, they were saying that like a hungry body is an anxious body. So at the same time, like as your body loses nourishment or as you, as you, you know, deprive your body of nourishment, that also upregulates anxiety. So it's interesting that you kind of have like almost this twofold effect of like the anxiety kind of creating the or being like a precursor to the eating disorder. And then at the same time, that restriction, like increasing the anxiety simultaneously. Like, is that something that you've noticed too? Like, yeah. 
definitely. And it, it is like when you're malnourished, when there's not enough energy coming in, like it does have that effect. And I think the trick is with this in the beginning, if you have anxiety and that's then leading to the eating disorder, there is this sort of honeymoon period where it does seem to, it does seem to work. And you do have some level of calmness or euphoria or something that's like, oh, there's a re- like a really good bit of feedback here of like why I, I want to keep doing this. And then at some point as the, the malnutrition increases and the, the body is then kind of dealing with that, then the anxiety starts to, to really ramp up again. And then you're in a situation where I'm like, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Like if I don't eat, I've still got all this anxiety. And if I do eat, the anxiety is even worse. But I'm not like I'm I'm not really getting away from the anxiety. Like I now just have this horrible baseline like baseline anxiety. And if I stay with the status quo, that's where it is. But if I try and change something, it feels worse, at least in the short term. And I think the thing with this is, and and the bit that really kind of hit home with this is like the thing with anxiety disorders is they're about avoidance. And this is true whether like we're talking about OCD or whether we're talking about an eating disorder, like you are trying to avoid something, whether that is a particular feeling, a particular thought, et cetera. And so I feel uncomfortable when I think about eating cake, for example. And so I, I, I don't eat cake or it feels uncomfortable for me to have breakfast. And so I now don't have breakfast. And and the, the tricky thing with this is avoidance begets more avoidance. And this is definitely the case with an eating disorder is you're constantly creating this new normal and a new normal in, an, in a very unhelpful direction. So if yesterday I did X amount of exercise and that was an increase from the day before, this now becomes my new norm. And it feels anxious to now do something less. Or I now didn't have breakfast for the last three days to now try and bring breakfast back in now feels so much more anxiety provoking because my new norm is that I now don't have breakfast. And so there's this kind of like asymmetry with it where it becomes more and more easy to do things that are in support of the eating disorder. And it's more and more anxiety provoking to do something that is then different to to move in the opposite direction. And I think that really ties to body size and the way someone feels in their body. It's like if they gain a little bit of weight, that is extremely anxiety provoking. And so therefore they're trying to avoid that through the restriction. So, and so then that drives those restrictive behaviors with the food as well. So it's like, yeah, I can see that with clients, like just that you know, that panicky feeling that comes if you notice any changes to your body. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things that Sasha talked about in in the the talk was that there is so many similarities with eating disorders with this. And so I, I know her talk was framed as is anorexia nervosa an anxiety disorder. But really, if you look at all of the eating disorders, that there's sort of three common things that they have that they share. And so one is a fear of the consequence of eating. And so that's anxiety provoking. And the consequence could be weight gain. It could be the unhealthiness of food. It could be a fear of choking in terms of like ARFID. So there is this like fear of a consequence of eating. There is weight suppression. And so someone is at a lower weight than where they historically were and that this is part of eating disorder. And then there are the behaviors that then 
maintain that eating disorder. And again, this comes back into the the avoidance piece. You're you're doing more behaviors to avoid doing the things that are uncomfortable. And it then continues to sort of just go in that in that vicious cycle. And so it's not just because I think it could be very easy to, to hear this and be like, oh, okay, that that only applies to anorexia and I don't have anorexia. And it, it, like I I and, and so I just want to make it really clear, like this is this is all eating disorders. This isn't just anorexia. And I think it applies to even just a disordered relationship with food or exercise too, that might not be like completely clinical diagnosed, you know, like if I think about my own situation and, and the other, th- I just want to caveat, cause you mentioned like a lower weight, but that doesn't mean you're in a low weight category. It means that your body is like, you can still be larger bodied or higher weight and be at a lower weight than like where you're meant to be. And I think that that trips people up. And, and obviously that's like, there's a lot of, you know, weight stigma in, in eating disorder recovery because people don't get diagnosed because of the way they look. But so I just wanted to just caveat that for people listening, because sometimes people will think like, well, I, you know, this is, I'm not sick enough or, but it's, yeah, it's not about the the actual body size. It's more about the change. Yeah. Yeah. So weight suppressed from where you have historically been. And also like with time, if your body starts to weight cycle, you could still be at a higher weight from where you've been previously, but your body still hasn't recovered properly and got the the energy that it needs to to do all of that repair. And so you're still stuck within that place. And so, yeah, I'm like you, I'm always very careful to talk about this with clients in terms of like, no, you can be malnourished at any size. If you're not taking enough for what your body needs, you can like it's, you don't have to get to a place of being emaciated. And most people don't even get there. Like the majority of people, even if we're looking very specifically at anorexia, the majority of people who have anorexia are not diagnosed with they're diagnosed with atypical anorexia, which is anorexia in a in a higher in a higher weight, or or at least a weight that's not what we stereotypically think of as anorexia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I know we wanted to talk about exposure, but I also wanted you to talk about your framework. I'm assuming maybe exposure is part of your framework. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so maybe we'll just go right into your framework then and you can tie the exposure into that. But so yeah, so you've developed your own framework for for this, like that's really kind of, you know, influenced by the notion that eating disorders are anxiety disorders, as well as what you've learned from the Minnesota starvation experiment. So I'd love you to share, you know, like what that framework is and walk us through it. Yeah, sure. And and just in, in terms of the the exposure piece, I, I will just before I talk about the framework, I would just say that the gold standard for how to deal with anxiety disorders is exposure. And so it is it is doing the the thing that you're afraid of. And so yeah, that that's how you you deal with that. And so yes, I, I've come up with a framework, and and this is how I work with with really all clients and and helping with with recovery. But honestly, I would say this is universal. Like I don't have an eating disorder. I'm not in recovery, but I regularly use this framework in my own life, and I I call it the simplifying success framework. And I reflected on the fact that everything I work on with clients is about three areas. And the three areas are state, story, and structure. And each of these areas are impacted upon by one another and and impact on one another. And so if we break it down, so state is the state that your body is in. 
And state can be affected by by different things. So if we look at like the Minnesota starvation experiment, state can be the energy balance that you have coming in, the amount of energy that is that is coming in and, and how that affects you. State can also be affected by your your nervous system and where your your nervous system is. I don't know if you've done any episodes on like polyvagal theory, but that's a, a big part of of how how I work and, and what I talk about with clients. I haven't, but I know what it is. But yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. And state can then just be different symptoms that are that are occurring and, and where someone is in terms of recovery and healing and, and that kind of thing. So so state is is one thing, then story. And story is really all the the thoughts that that you have, the the beliefs that you have, the perceptions that you have. It can be the emotions and sensations that you you feel. So really the information and feedback that you're you're getting from your your mind and body and what your level of discernment is with these things how much you're able to kind of take this on board how much you're able to create distance between these things and then the final piece is structure and structure is like what is your day to day look like what what are the, the the things that you are doing across the day what are the habits that you keep up. So this can include the eating that you do across the day. It can include your sleeping, your social connection, movement, work, journaling, time outside, like all the different things that that make up your day. And when I'm working with a client, if we're, we're looking at like, are things going in the right direction in terms of like a pro-recovery direction or if things are going in a, in a not so great re- direction, we can pretty much look at all like one of these things or all of these things together and it can give us a fairly good indication of of what's going on and kind of the thing that connects all of this is taking action so if someone is moving in the right direction they're they're taking action and if someone isn't there's avoidance that is that is occurring and so i can i can kind of give an example with this just to kind of clarify it a little bit so for example a client is saying, okay, I, I'm wanting to, to make a, a change. I'm, I'm going to set the goal at the fact that I'm going to have, I'm going to start to include breakfast or I'm going to make my breakfast bigger than, I, than I've been, been having. And that's the goal. And then they, they wake up on that, that morning and maybe there's some, some thoughts that start to arise in them about, okay, should I, should I do this thing? I don't, I don't know. Maybe they can feel that there's a, there's a shift in, in their nervous system and they're, they're becoming more panicked or or more worried or there's more of a kind of fight or flight connected to that and then in that situation they they choose not to to have their breakfast that they they said they were going to have as as part of that and so in that situation their their state is affected because they're now not getting the energy coming in as as part of that choice it's affected the structure of their day because they're now not having that breakfast that they had certain thoughts that came to mind and they they then became hooked by those thoughts and and followed through on on the thoughts that the, the eating disorder generated. And it then kind of just led to that chain of events. And if, for example, the the opposite had occurred. And so they they'd had that uncomfortableness that had arisen. And they'd have those thoughts that that had come up in their mind and they were able to diffuse from those thoughts and create some distance and notice, okay, these are these are just thoughts. My mind is generating a, a thought here. And they were able to, to still have the 
the breakfast. They, they are then bringing in some some energy, and that then has a, a knock on effect in terms of their state. It has a knock on effect in terms of their structure because they kept up with that, and they then it comes time to to have their snack, and they then keep up doing doing that thing. And so, really, it's just looking at what direction is is things going like are you sort of trending in an upward direction in terms of taking action or are you trending in a downward direction in, in terms of avoidance and i will say that like it's not linear like this there'll, there'll be days where things are working in a better direction and days where it's not but it's it's just a, a way of starting to look at okay if things are not going so well, let's have a look at, let's have a chat about what's going on from a state perspective. Let's have a chat about what's going on in terms of your 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 stories and the kinds of thoughts that are coming up and the kinds of feelings that are coming up. Let's have a look in terms of your structure and what's what's getting in in the way of that or what's been happening across the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And yeah, like to your point, it's like it does take that action like to make the change which is really uncomfortable to do and but that's the only way that things really change like avoidance doesn't result in change like it would be great if we could make these changes through osmosis but it doesn't happen that way yeah and i see that and for people to then be also like a lot of what i'll focus on is then like self-compassion and to be to be having compassion for yourself when that when that is difficult and and so yes as i said it's it's not linear and you're right like uh, one of the things i say a lot to clients is you don't think your way into acting differently you act your way into thinking differently mm-hmm. like i am very much a big proponent of like you take action and you do it again and again and your beliefs start to shift as opposed to i'm going to change my beliefs in advance and then i will start to to do this thing it just doesn't work in that order and so it's it's very much action exposure orientated. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's been my experience with it as well. I mean, I wish we could avoid stuff and have things change, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. Yeah, totally. And as I said, like I can reflect on this in my own life in terms yeah. of things I'm I'm afraid of doing and sending an email or having a conversation with someone or setting a boundary or, or whatever. And I can tell what happens in terms of avoidance and how that affects my state and the stories that start to come up. And so, yeah, I, I can catch myself with this stuff as well and know that there'll be times where I do follow through and take action and there'll be times where I don't. Yep. Me too. Me too. Nope. Same. I totally relate to that. So you're not alone, I guess, if you're feeling that way. And and it's not to say that, you know, there's something wrong with you or that we're you, that if you're if you're having trouble or that you need to strive for perfection, but rather it's just like, yeah, trying to be curious about your own situation as well as get support if you feel like you are getting stuck and you need that push of someone to kind of guide you or help you make it a little bit more feasible for you to take some of these actions. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely with with eating disorder recovery, I think there are people out there who did it on their own, and they're 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 they've made a business out of that. And I think the vast vast majority of people need support. Like this, this is a really difficult thing. This I, I say this to clients all the time. This will most likely be the most difficult thing you ever do, and so to try and do that on your own is is very very challenging. And most people don't succeed when they do try and do it on their own. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like putting together Ikea furniture. It's like, yeah, you could do it on your own. <laughs> but like, if you have somebody who's an expert helping you, it's going to be so much faster. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, this has been so helpful, Chris. Where can people find more of you? 
So if they come to seven-health.com, that's my my website and my, my business name. I also have a podcast called Real Health Radio that touches on lots of topics like this. And as part of this, I'll, I'll send over to, to you somewhere and you can put in the show notes some of the, the episodes that I've referenced as, as part of this yeah, uh, amazing. And then how are you? You're working with people one on one as well. Yeah. So, so my work is predominantly with eating disorder recovery, and yeah, it's it's one on one work, and and clients or you know, people can come over to the the website and they can read about how I how I work with clients, and then they can apply for a free recovery strategy session, and and we can have a conversation about okay, what would that look like, and and figure out if we're a good fit. Yeah. Amazing. So good to see you again and have you back on the show. Always super knowledgeable and definitely check out Chris's podcast for more and work with him if you can. Perfect. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. Rock on. There is so much good content in this episode. I feel like it's one of those ones I can go back and listen to over and over. I am linking the articles and podcast episodes that Chris has done on these subjects as well. So if you want to look at this in a little bit more detail than what we were able to cover in this episode, you'll be able to find those in the show notes as well as anything else that was mentioned in this episode. You can find that at summerinandin.com forward slash 266. If you don't know how to spell my name, you can always just go to thebodyimagecoach.com. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you listening. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Summer Inanin. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts, search Eat the Rules, and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.